Hello and welcome to an episode of Five Questions in Ten Minutes. I'm Paul Guttaker, Director of Brazos Fellows, and I'm happy to be joined virtually this morning by Dr. Andrea Turpin, who um, just was on a uh, video conference edition of our Brazos Fellows course as we resume our study during a time of plague and pestilence. Um, but thanks for being with us, Andrea. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah, so... Um, Andrea is Associate Professor of History at Baylor. Uh, she was actually on my dissertation committee um, and got to, to read all those words and footnotes. Uh, but she has her AB from Princeton, her MA from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and her PhD from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, she works on intellectual history, religious history, the history of gender, and the history of higher ed. And her first book is called A New Moral Vision, Gender, Religion, and the Changing Purposes of American Higher Education, 1837 to 1917. Her current research project looks at the Protestant fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early 20th century, and especially the role of women uh, and women's institutions in this controversy. And that was, um, you know, sort of the general topic we were talking about with the fellows this morning. These um, early 20th century debates between modernists and fundamentalists, and some of the implications. Um, of this for our understanding of the history of Protestantism in the United States, but also current questions the church faces. So a great discussion. Uh, really glad we had you on and um, glad to subject you to five questions. So um, let's just jump in. First question. Um, and this is, I don't know, this is a question I just like to think about and talk about. So it's a bit of a selfish one, but before you, you know, did just history, you also studied theology and church history. And I guess a two-parter, um, what do you think theologians need to hear from historians and vice versa? What's maybe one thing that historians can learn from theologians? So, of course, you've got at least two types of theologians who uh, are systematic and historical. And so, admittedly, historical theologians are, generally speaking, somewhat in tune with history. So yeah. Props. Um, I remember in seminary, they philosophized the concept of theology, which was a little bit mind-blowing to me in a good way, right? The theology is taking the eternal revelation of God and contextualizing it in the concepts of our current generation, so I have to keep doing it, um, as well as having it speak to the particular issues of our current generation, mm. and sometimes um, challenging the mental frameworks of our current generation. Yeah. Right. Um, and I guess what theologians need to hear from historians is that if you stand too close to a thing, you can't see it well, mm. right? So in trying to speak to our current categories and critique them and speak to our current culture, uh, it helps to be familiar with other cultures, yeah. both across space and across time, uh, because that actually is the distance you need to see the present well. Mm. Mm -hmm. In terms of what historians can learn from theologians, I would say that it's that our categories of analysis shape our readers and listeners worldview and imagination. Yeah. So the questions we ask as historians, uh, the stories we tell, who we include, who we don't, who we at least mention we're not because we can't do it all, but this is also important, mm -hmm. uh, shape our readers understanding of reality. And so those it's an inherently theological discipline in that sense, that the yeah. categories and lenses that we apply uh, to the way we read the world and the questions we ask uh, 
affect our readers' understanding. When I was writing my book, I had a note taped to my computer that read, resist the urge to reduce meaning to the material. Mm -hmm. I believe that there is more to life than just the material, and so did some of my subjects. Mm -hmm. And if I write in such a way as to only talk about the material, I am not uh, accurately portraying the world. That doesn't mean that I claim to know what God's doing in history, which, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole big thing about that. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Ability basically is that we don't claim to know that unless it's been directly revealed. But it does mean that we write in such a way that we make space for our subjects' beliefs that there's more to life than the physical. Mm, I love that. There's a lot of resonance there and sort of both parts of what you said, too. I mean, one of the central questions we're trying to ask at Process Fellows is how to think with the church, which means the church throughout space, like around the world, but also throughout time, and to to assume or to sort of state that that is valuable is, I think, to make a theological claim about mm-hmm. who we are, what what community we're a part of, um, and uh, so I yeah I just love that. That's a good that's a good um, a good word. Okay, question two. Um, they won't all be two parters. <laughs> um, so famously, William Gladstone. I learned this from uh, Dr. David Bevington had four doctors, right? He had the four authors that he said most sort of shaped who he was and how he thought. And his were Aristotle, Augustine, Dante, and Joseph Butler. I'm wondering who you'd say your four doctors are. I'd like to go ahead and go on record that I am not nearly as classy as last <laughs> um, Who is, though? <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give them in chronological order for their influence on me. Yeah. The first one will shock some people. Um, because I am very interested in the importance of having men and women work together in all spheres of life you know, because we are we have unique perspectives and no one of us has both perspectives and so it's important that we work together. But my first doctor is John Piper, who's an exceptionally conservative theologian mm-hmm. on gender roles, who would probably not approve, honestly, of my being a professor and particularly one who incorporates theology into what I do. But it's not that part of his theology that's been helpful to me. Mm. I encountered his book, Desiring God, as an undergraduate, and his mm-hmm. articulation of a theology of Christian hedonism, mm-hmm. or that it is good to pursue happiness. We pr- what matters ethically is what we pursue happiness in, mm-hmm. uh, and that God calls us to delight in him and in his will, and that the Christian life is ultimately satisfying and joyful. Yeah, And that was huge for me as I was working on college and building my understanding of Mm -hmm. Christian theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second person is actually a historical subject, someone I write about, uh, Mary Lyon, Mm -hmm. who was the founder of Mount Holyoke, uh, originally Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, later Mount Holyoke College. And when I first encountered her writings in my master's program, and I read a lot of her letters because she was the subject of my master's thesis and a lot of her treatises, um, she was orthodox theologically. Um, she was had a natural intelligence and curiosity about the world. And she was a woman at a time when women did not have college education. Mm. And she used all of these traits together to creatively serve God. She founded a school to give women as the highest education available to them at that time, with only one exception. Um, and also worked to introduce them to faith in Jesus. And then give them like a creative mental space for how they could use these two things together to serve God Mm -hmm. um, as missionary teachers in the U S West and abroad. 
Um, so her using of her situatedness as an intelligent woman yeah. uh, creatively has been an inspiration to me. The final two doctors, probably, and maybe this is like a stereotypical choice for an academic, uh, two of my professors from my PhD program, my advisor and what I would probably label my secondary advisor, my advisor, Jim Turner, and my secondary advisor, um, a professor with whom I also work closely, uh, George Marsden. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Turner is probably most famous to your re uh, listenership for writing Without God, Without Creed, mm -hmm. uh, development of how atheism became intellectually possible. Um, he is he writes from a uh, and lives from a more liberal Catholic perspective, but very capacious. He works with students who are atheists to like really conservative mm. evangelical protestants because he just has a very robust understanding of human nature that comes out in his work that's subtle um that we can be driven by conscious and unconscious forces right and like it's mm -hmm. and he is very good at people and systems and he's an exceptional writer i mean almost probably one of the best living writers in mm. terms of how to put words on a page in the historical profession yeah that i will never match but can always aspire <laughs> is one of the deans of the modern um evangelical historians who's done a lot of philosophical work on how to integrate christian faith and historical writing and as a philosophically minded person i have found um, both reading his work and studying under him as particularly helpful in conceptualizing my vocation that's great i love it um okay Question three is our rapid fire round. So I'll just give you sets, right. sets of names and things and you just pick a winner. You can explain yourself or you can just let your choice hang in the air and, and, okay. and right. leave it mysterious. Right. So here we go. Augustine or Aquinas? Augustine. Okay. Uh, Kelvin, Luther, or Granmer? <laughs> I'm like, don't have strong opinions on this one. Great. Probably Luther. Okay, great. Uh, Herbert Hopkins or Rossetti? Uh, um, Herbert. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to give myself away. Um, Lewis Tolkien or Sayers? I'll explain this one. Um, Lewis, for a reason that will become apparent when you ask another one of the questions that you told me. Oh, um, good, great. But with strong. A strong second for Sayers and particularly for Gaudy Knight. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, if you are in academia and don't love Gaudy Knight, I mean, if you haven't read it, that's one thing. But if you've read it and not loved it, I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> okay, great. Um, the Office, 30 Rock, or The Good Place? Okay, The Good Place because it's the only one I've seen all the episodes. Oh, those. yeah. Though so I good. have serious concerns with how it ended. But Interesting. Yeah, but really, really thought-provoking. Maybe we should do a, um, I know this is a, a favorite of Anne Jeffries, so maybe we should do a, a round table. Um, so Anne and I actually belong to an informal lunch group of uh, somewhat evangelical women in the somewhat humanities that okay. we talked about. The, I thought you were going to say a lunch group about the good place, and I was about to be um, No, um, no, it sad. just happened to be a topic. <laughs> Great, okay, and this is probably the most controversial one. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? Barbecue. Okay. <laughs> definitive definitive <laughs> confident great um okay let's get to question four then what's um what's a work could be literature art music um sort of anything uh you want to any direction you want to go 
but the work that you find yourself returning to that you kind of um, keep coming back to. So I refuse to answer only one, but I will, um, the one that I, I put to the top of this list, and this is why Lewis won that choice, is a single passage from the book Paralandra. Mm. Uh, it is the great dance passage, which is maybe mm-hmm. three or four pages long in the mm-hmm. final chapter of Paralandra, yeah. which is this vision of what the plurality of creation in the universe is about and how we each play a role and how everything, it's simultaneously true to say that everything is about any one of us or any one thing like a tree and everything is about something else. And we are mm. entirely footnote to someone else's story. And those are both true at the same time. Mm. And I think mm-hmm. it's, he's getting at something very true about uh, the beautiful picture that God is weaving in the world and how we each play a role in that. And we each have a story that's our unique picture of a relationship with God and what God's doing. And that we each, our lives are also just really about pouring out in love for someone else's story. Love it. I remember that passage. I'll have to go back and read it again. Great. Did you, uh, you said you wanted to go in a couple directions. I'll allow it. Music would be Andrew Peterson, yeah. particularly his albums, Love and Thunder and Light for the Lost Boy, though most things that he does are really good. Um, and if we want to go secular music, for whatever reason, it's Billy Joel. Mm. Um, Billy Joel has a pretty good understanding of love and human relationships. It's kind of surprising in some ways, but I, also I just happen to like that type of music. <laughs> Is there a favorite Billy Joel? Oh, gosh. Um, well, it's... Uh, the Room, I think it's, no, and so it goes. Very sad, but beautiful oh, song. Yeah. And also it, it highlights his vocal ability. Yeah, it's great. Okay, last question. What's next on your reading list? What's on the book stand? Uh, a book called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian by mm. Michelle Lee Barnawal. Um, I like reading, uh, I read theology of gender because I do history of gender in the church. Mm-hmm. And I like reading people who don't fit in boxes. Yeah. Um, who, articulate alternative possibilities it helps my own thinking oh that's great love it well as always listeners will link to all of these different items so you can read along with uh, dr turpin and collected uh, works of billy joel yeah that's right listen along uh read along uh that's great well thanks again andrea thanks for um being on the podcast thanks for teaching the fellows this morning it was a real treat to have you on and um to uh yeah to learn from you My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. And thanks for listening. Um, Stay tuned. We'll have more episodes of Five Questions in 10 Minutes coming up this semester. Bye for now.